Are we fundamentally selfish people or selfless people? Are you naturally a giver or a taker? We live in a world where a prevalent way of thinking is that we begin with me, 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 self-interest. And that drives really the force behind almost everything we do. Because this is so fundamental, this is like the foundation of so many other issues, relationships, marriage, friendships, business, world peace, cooperation between communities and countries, we decided to do a new two-part series called The Selfless Ego. In this first part, please join me as we discuss why not be selfish? Hi, Simon Jacobson here. Welcome to a new two-part series, The Selfless Ego. In this first part, we will be discussing why not be selfish. This program is dedicated in honor of Emmanuel ben Yitzchak HaLevi and Gitl bas Yitzchak HaKoyen. It's always good to go back to axioms and to fundamental principles that we often take for granted that are just givens, assumptions that we either picked up at home in our childhood, in our, in our schools, in our communities, online. And that I'm, I want to address and even attack, if you wish, not in a negative way, but challenge the very premise that drives so many of our lives, if not all our lives. And that is the question, are you at heart, at your core, a selfish person or a selfless person? And when I say selfish, I know right away it, uh, it presses all the buttons and red lights go off. Selfish, I'm not necessarily mean a bad person. It means that self-interest drives your life. Now, in the Western world, the prevalent assumption is that self-interest is number one. In the words of Freud, the id, the id, id, the selfish pleasure principle, that it's all about me and my survival. Or to use Darwinian terms, some people call it social Darwinism, and that is the idea of survival of the fittest, which means the, the primary force that drives every species, every human being, every animal, every creature, every plant, is survival, perpetuation of its own kind. And it will do everything to get that satisfied. It will hunt, feed its young, fight off competition to breed. As we see in all these nature images and the nature videos that captured so vividly. And the same thing with a human being. The only thing is, a human being has a more superior mind. That alone is a discussion how that evolved. 
Some actually say it's a mutation. We, have, we became too smart for ourselves. And with that mind, we also can go far beyond just survival, which means we can also plan to exterminate and uh, decimate and uh, kill everyone around us if we wish. Have we seen the Nazis in their own obscene way? And throughout history we see that story. And animals, even though there are wars between different groups and tribes and so on, but a type of complete annihilation of another species you're not going to find. And even their self-interest in the animal kingdom is balanced. It's all part of a balance of nature. With human beings, we see we can go far beyond that. Which again is not the scope of this discussion, but you see that self-interest can become actually quite dangerous and destructive. And that's why we have wars and bloodshed and racism and discrimination and so many of the other ugly elements that we humans have to face and deal with. But what is the driving principle? What's our natural instinct? Not acquired. Because acquired, as Freud puts it, there's the id, the pleasure principle that drives the human being, but then there's an ego and a superego, which control the type of regulators. Think of it like traffic police. Red lights and green lights. Because to coexist, which is also part of self-interest, we need to learn to work together, or else we'll kill each other off. So this doesn't mean selfish is completely untamed and unfettered and everyone's at war with each other, but there is a fundamental element of self that drives everything. And that is a prevalent theory. Are there those that disagree? Of course there are those that disagree. Viktor Frankl in his logotherapy talks about the drive for meaning and purpose in life, which is a far more transcendental drive. The reason it's important to address, we have to first make the case, and that's what I'm doing right now, the case for selfishness. And the case continues on, especially when you include the biological evolutionary aspects. Because who else is going to take care of me and my species if it's not myself? So it's necessary. If I was too selfless, I would forego and compromise myself and my family and let others dominate. So it's necessary to have this so-called selfish gene in the words of Dawkins, Richard Dawkins in his famous book, Selfish Gene. That the very gene itself is selfish. It's driven to take care of itself and to get rid of any type of adversity or anything that will attack or try to in any way hurt it. That's the natural instinct. And you could, as I said, make a very powerful case for that. But where does that leave us? That leaves us with a world that is primarily driven by self-interest. We cooperate because our intelligence tells us we should, and it's good for us. But we cooperate only as much as necessary. Push comes to shove. Everyone is for their, on their own. Dog eats dog. And we see this, and so you just make the case even stronger. You see it in unfortunate situations like an avalanche, or where people are really desperate or tortured. They will turn on each other to preserve themselves in most instances or many instances, which only demonstrates like when things are going well, yes, people seem very sweet and cordial and all that. But when things are not going well, people will resort, we've seen this, to cannibalism. And during the Holocaust or other tragic events of that nature, people did turn in others just to save their own skin.
even though it didn't save them. But for the moment, they thought it would. In the words of uh, Churchill, appeasement is like feeding the crocodiles in the hope that you will be eaten last. I can go on and build this case, but I think if any of us give us some thought, you do see this as a driving force in business. I mean, even capitalism, in contrast to socialism. Socialism may be sound more idealistic, more utopian, but at the end of the day, capitalism, that greed and self-interest is a driving force. You take that away, people won't be motivated. You take away their, the, the incentive of profit, the incentive of having private property, and other things that are about me, then you take away that drive that causes people to excel. So we have to figure out how to tame it, how to keep it at bay, that that greedy drive shouldn't destroy others. But just to give an example, uh, yeah, it just comes to mind. People who I know well work in the finance business. They say it's all driven that we compete against each other even. Our bosses build that into the system. So I have friends who I used to be complete friends with. Now we're subtly competing, or maybe not so subtly, for the promotion, for a greater bonus. And that's part of the drive. Now, healthy competition is good, but it could sometimes compromise our souls. I mean, Marx, Karl Marx, that is, put it very well. I'm not a Marxian, and I'm not trying to promote Marxism here. I said Marxian, Marxist. But nevertheless, you learn from everybody. When he talks about alienation, the alienation that's created inherently by capitalism, the alienation of worker from boss, employee and employer, the alienation of worker and the product, industrialization, you don't even recognize or need that product. You're just creating alienation one person to another, alienation, as he puts it, from you and your soul. I don't know if he uses the word soul, but it's like you're not you because you're not producing for someone else. Those are very accurate statements. The thing is, he didn't have a solution. His solution didn't work. So how do we address this? And above all, why not be selfish? Yes, I'll keep it controlled. But why not? What's the case for not being selfish? As one person or more than one person wrote to me about different programs I've done, you're always basing things on doing things for others. Why not be selfish? Give us a good reason for not to be that way. So I'm addressing it from the point, not just the reason, who are we? Are we indeed the selfish creature that I just described? Now, if you look in your heart, many people will say, when I look in my heart, yes, I am selfish. Self-interest drives everything. And even when I'm kind and generous, which is also part of who I am, it does not, it's not going to completely compromise my self-interest. In many ways, it will enhance it. Everyone needs to answer that question themselves. But I do want to now submit an alternative approach based not just on logic, the logic we'll talk about afterwards, but based on who are we? Are we indeed that selfish id, the survival of the fittest creature that is primarily, primarily driven by self-interest? Well, the approach I'm going to take, as you can, I'm sure, guess and imagine, is exact opposite approach. When you look at things from materialistic eyes, through the lens of materialism, yes, the case I made is very clear. 
the case of self comes first. But when you look at it from spiritual eyes, through the eyes of the soul, it's a very different reality. So I'm not denying that the body, when I say body, I mean the body consciousness. And physical consciousness is driven by that self and by that self-interest. And it should be that way because we do need to protect ourselves. But there's another voice, another inherent part of us that's deeper than our bodies. And that's your soul. And your soul is fundamentally unselfish because it does not need to acquire and hold on to things or feel that another is taking something away from you to be secure and real. That's what it comes down to. If you're in an insecure situation, which means you recognize that you and your possessions are all circumstantial and even temporary. Tomorrow someone can come and take everything away from you, steal it, outmaneuver you, manipulate you, or you can make mistakes. So of course you're going to hold on to every possession, every dollar, everything that you earn, because it's part of what makes you feel secure. And the same thing with your home and family. But if you have a part of yourself that is fundamentally real and true, independent of anyone else, no one can take it away from you, because no one has given it to you, so you have a force inside of you, a voice, an identity inside of you that is self-secure. So there's no need to hoard. There's no need to win and to dominate because you have everything you need. That is how we identify the soul. That it has a divine, eternal nature to it. That in many ways is not even born and doesn't die. It's not even subject to mortality. Yes, a human being will die. The soul and body won't last forever in the world in which we live. But the soul does not die. That means every good deed you do, every act you do, lives on forever. In other words, the soul is the source of your indispensability. That you're absolutely necessary. And it has nothing to do with your performance or your equity and anything else in life. It's just inherently part of you. When a new child is born in a healthy environment, the parents are conveying that message just with their loving look and gaze at the child. When a child is in its mother's womb, it's feeling that in its unconscious, superconscious as it's physiologically developed, being completely submerged in the embryonic fluids, being taken care of, nurtured, fed, even its very breath, all taken care of for nine months. That's embedded in our very being. That's not some imposed, acquired gift. It's who you are. That's how you began. And if it continues after birth with that attitude, What do you think will happen with this child? The child will be a secure, confident child. Will it have to fight out of self-interest because it's desperate or because it feels that it's being taken advantage of? No. Not from that perspective. Then there's another voice, the material voice, that says, me, me, me. Take, take, take. So the problem is that most of us are not aware of 
and don't know how to cultivate that second part of ourselves that I just described. But at the heart of it all, it begins with that. That's the real you. And that real you, when I say selfless, is not selfless as if, oh, I'm giving everything away and I'm irresponsible and I don't take care of my own interests and my own family's interests or my friends' or my community's interests. No, no, that's not the case. It's just that that is not the driving force that controls everything. In other words, it begins with, why am I here? What purpose am I living up to? How I serve? And in a healthy, balanced way, no, I'm not a doormat. I also have an identity, and I have to take care of myself. But that's not the driving force that controls and commands everything you do. Now, this indeed is correct, and I'm saying if, because I just want to be fair, that there are two schools, different schools of thought. I firmly embrace, obviously, the second school of thought, but I'm just saying it for, I'd like to always be open-minded and present it in that fashion. But if this indeed is the case, then the case for not being selfish doesn't require a whole um, thesis. It's who you are. And when you behave that way, you live up to the self who you're supposed to be. You know, it's the greatest self-interest thing you can do is to not be driven by self-interest because that's not who you really are. Is there a part of us that has that element? Is that this, like this, the place we gravitate to when all else fails? Yes, because that's the nature of the material world. It's just like most of us don't see the spirit within, the energy within existence. We see what's here. And a simple example, simple, simple example. You're walking down the street. You're going to a very important meeting to help somebody. Somebody's called upon you for help. You suddenly get distracted. There's something very beautiful that's attracting you. A beautiful uh, uh, image in a window of a store, clothing, maybe a beautiful person of the opposite gender, whatever it may be. You get very taken by that, and you forget about your appointment. What's going on? Let's dissect the anatomy of this scenario, which happens to all of us. I just gave an example. It can be very different. You really want to, let's say, lose weight, you see a delicious piece of food that you shouldn't be eating, you're tempted. You're trying to be responsible. Somebody calls you, a, tele, a telemarketer, and sells you something, some garbage, but they, they're very convincing. They emotionally manipulate you. All the same scenarios, different, um, different, all the same idea, but different scenarios. What's going on? Very simple. The material world has its way of tempting us toward instant gratification, that's its nature. And what's really good for you requires reflection, not to follow impulses and your emotional subjective instincts and impulses, but to reflect. I say, one second, this is tempting me? There's more to life than just my eyes and my ears or whatever is right now getting my attention. But we have this battle every moment. What are you going to do your next minute of your life? Are you going to help someone else or are you going to help yourself? Now, it's not a contradiction fundamentally if you have the balance. So here you see how it plays itself out. The material world by its very nature is a selfish reality. So Dawkins is right. There is a selfish gene in a certain sense of the word. But that's not the whole picture. There's also another part of us, the soul. As the Bible puts it, created in the divine image. It's a transcendent force. What's the difference between transcendence and survival? Everything. 
Survival is about taking, absorbing, all the arrows pointing inward, selfish, self-interest, transcendent outside of myself, beyond myself, greater than myself. So you tell me what resonates. Are you only the first or do you have also the transcendent? I've rarely met anybody. I don't know if I've ever met anyone, to be honest, that says there's no transcendent side to me. They may say I'm not interested in it. I'd rather make more money and take care of my own needs. But to say you don't have one, every human being has it. We wouldn't be alive if we didn't have it. In the words that I use very often from the book of Proverbs, the soul is like a flame. The soul of a human being is a flame of God. A flame is always flickering. It's always defying gravity, reaching upward, looking upward. Now, some of us satisfy that through romance, through travel, through art, through music, through other cultural elements, some through religion, spirituality. But it's something beyond just you. What true love is about. Is love a completely selfish thing? Some say yes. It's another need. One of my needs. That need maybe requires also giving something to get what I want. But there's a whole other take on love, which I've discussed in other classes. The transcendent take. Love is about becoming greater than yourself. By reaching, by embracing, by respecting and celebrating another. That's what true love is. So transcendence is a fundamental part of our very nature. I can see someone arguing with that. Fine, you can argue with that. I'm not sure what the argument would be. We see it all the time in human life. But let's argue that there's a battle between transcendence and survival. We know that. Those two voices. But transcendence being part of us, once you accept that, as I said, here's the case I'm making for it, then why not be selfish? Because it's not the real you. Not because it's not right. You know, many people say I'm selfish. The id is the driving force. But the right thing to do is to be charitable and giving and so on. And that makes for a better society. also makes for a better human being. I totally agree. But it's much deeper than that. It's the very nature of who you are. And that's why you look and you see. There's a very fascinating expression in the Jerusalem Talmud. It says, expression in Aramaic is, Nemed de Chasufa. Unearned bread. That when someone gives you a gift, there's a certain shame. Shameful bread, I should say. Certain shame because you haven't earned it. Or in the words of another Talmudic statement, these are brilliant psychological insights. That a person prefers one measure earned on their own than nine measures given to you as a gift. In other words, if I offered you nine million dollars, but it's a gift. Or earning your own one million, that one million has more value than the nine million. Now I know you'll say, one second, I'd rather get the nine million as a gift. I could always earn my money on my own. We're not talking about what you want, but of course that's easier. But you'll blow the nine million easier, faster, with the one million you will cherish and protect because it's yours. So there's something about human initiative that we make the effort instead of just receiving it. So what's more ultimately pleasurable in life, to take or to give? Reminds me of that scene in the Frisco Kid where the train robber you know, robs everyone of their money and their pearls and their, and their jewelry and so on. 
And before he jumps off the train, he says to them all, remember the lesson in life. <laughs> it's always better to give than to take. Okay. <laughs> but in, in, on a serious note, when you take, you may feel good. I've gotten, I've gotten, I have. I have more in my account, my bank account. I can count it. But there's something that can't be really fully expressed. The pleasure of giving. The pleasure of creating something. Of investing your energy and your time and your ingenuity and you create something. Whether you write something, whether you build something, whether you give. And it's also permanent. What you take can also be lost. What you give is never lost because the person who benefits from it will never forget. If you're a teacher, an educator, a writer... And the truth isn't anything in life. Yes, yes, what you give them, you may give them a piece of bread or some charity, that may run out, but not the gesture, not the compassion, not the kindness that you offered. So to sum up, the inherent you is not a selfish gene. It's not a selfish ego. The inherent you is a very self-contained, absolutely supremely confident soul, right here, a voice right inside of you, that loves to give. It gets greater when it gives. It's like a flame. When one flame, talk about a flame, when one flame lights another flame, it's the only thing in life that doesn't get diminished. When I give you a piece of my bread, a piece of my, some money, I have less materially, not spiritually, not psychologically. I have less. But when you, you share someone with something, like a flame, a flame does not become diminished when it lights another flame. It actually gets stronger because if those two flames come together, now you have something much greater. That's how the soul thinks. That's how the soul perceives. That's how it experiences things. So the first step I always tell anyone who's dealing with any issue, you know, obviously if someone's completely overwhelmed, they may not even be able to hear this. The first thing is find something to help another person. Because the more you dwell, the more you wallow, and marinate in your own needs, the more depressed you can get. As soon as you go outward, it's like opening up the window, fresh air. You let someone else in. Or you reach out to someone. So besides the fact that it's giving, introducing something fresh and new, it also changes the mindset. You're now going outward instead of inward. So instead of tying yourself all up in knots, it's like just inhaling, 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 you're exhaling. Not just a contraction, but an expansion of the heart. And the same thing in a very physical and spiritual and psychological way. The first step, because as soon as you do that, you're feeding, in addition to what I just said, you're feeding that part of you that is so naturally transcendent. And when you feed it, like anything, you water a flower, that's when it blossoms. The first step it's counterintuitive and it's very difficult because people say, listen, I'm, I'm too depressed right now. I'm feeling very bad. I'm very anxious. Why are you telling me to do that? But that's the catch-22. That's the best way to get out of your state of being and all your feelings is by doing something that's not about you. Helping another. Take a walk with a, a child with special needs. You know how enriched you'll become? Just seeing the child... Just looking at the child, the love that child will give off, the kindness that you show, how much it's reflected back to you. You'd be amazed, a simple act like that. And I've tried it with many people. 
wonders. Now it doesn't sound like much, but it shifts something. The love you get is the love you give. So my friends, the case for why not be selfish is first and foremost because it's not the natural you. You may not know it right now, but try it and you'll see. It's like a fish in water. Once you get into the water, you realize, ah, I'm, in, I'm at home. I've come home. Now, what do we do with the second part of ourselves, which is also the selfish voice, my needs? So, of course, the selfless ego is not someone that just ignores themselves. That's not what the goal here is. We're talking about a healthy person. But again, it's not the driving force self-interest. It's the transcendent that's the driving force. And part of that is also to be a responsible person. But what about the battle between the two? There is a battle. So, that's life. Life is, includes a battle. You're not, the, you're not the only one. Rest assured, all of us face this battle. And you have all the resources you need. All the strengths you need to win this battle. Is it a lifetime battle? Very often it will be. But we shouldn't be afraid of that. I will talk about this more in part two. Of how. We talked about the what. How. So, thank you. This is part one of a two-part series. The Selfless Ego. And I look forward to continuing this journey with you. So, Simon Jacobson. Meaningful Life Center. www.meaningfullife.com Please partake. Take advantage of all the resources we offer. Programs like this other programs for different audiences, different topics. And above all, I would love to hear from you. Your comments, your thoughts, your feedback, your suggestions, critique. Meaningfullife.com Be well, be healthy, and be the most selfish thing you can do is to be selfless. Be blessed. This program is brought to you by the Meaningful Life Center. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at MeaningfulLife.com slash donate.